Grace and mercy are amazing concepts and incredible gifts that God gives to you through Jesus Christ who has taken your place. Dear Christian friends, today we're, we're starting a new series for the season of Lent. The season of Lent is, is really one that's kind of lost a little bit in the shuffle of of the world, right? It's spring's coming up, spring break is coming up, days are maybe getting nicer, although who knows about snow. Like we, we tend to get kind of lost in the new, the new year, we're past the winter doldrums, we're looking forward to summer, spring sports are kicking off. But Lent is one of those times of the year, spiritually, within the Christian church that is incredibly important because it causes us to focus The whole point of the 40 days of Lent leading up from Ash Wednesday right up until Good Friday is to focus not on just Lent, but really what Christianity, what our faith is really all about. The message that Jesus is our Savior from sin, that good news. That's what Lent is all about. And we need that focus. Because I don't know if you've noticed The devil's really good at his job. He's really good at getting us to focus on something else, almost anything else, right? He's really good at at filling us up with busyness. He's also really good at getting us to think, I've heard all that before. Yeah, I I know Jesus paid for my sins. Obviously, I know this. And he wants us to think, as long as you know it, you're good. As long as you've heard it once before, that's enough. You've got it down. You know what's going on. Go, up, go ahead and be busy and fill your life up with all these other things because he wants you and me to focus on something, almost anything, especially this time of year, besides what Jesus has done for us. Because that's what Lent is all about. And you know why he wants you to think about that? Because the season of Lent is all about his end. And it's all about your life. Because it's all about how Jesus suffered and died. And on the cross, not only did he pay for sin, but he destroyed what the devil had set out to do. And that was to take you with him. He destroyed the devil's work. And then he rose again triumphantly on Easter. Right? The victory is assured and announced for all. So the devil says, yeah, don't worry. you got other stuff to do. Easter will be here. It's okay. You've heard it all before. But we need to be reminded of this important truth. And that's why over the next month, we're going to take a look at some different facets, some different pictures of the way that God tells us he saved us. We don't want to just rehash the same things over and over and over again. We want to to take a look at some of these amazingly beautiful descriptions that God gives in his word to help us understand the depth and the beauty that go into that. So we're going to look at some of these different scenes, some of these different scenarios that God uses to describe the way that he saved you. It's kind of like a, a really precious gem, right? Some of you ladies, maybe you look at your finger. Maybe you've seen something a little bigger in a store or in a museum. 
or somewhere else, right? And you've seen this beautiful gem. And you look at it in the light. Oh, and it sparkles. Oh, it's so beautiful. And then you turn it just a little bit, and it catches the light in a totally different way. And there's a whole nother, whole nother aspect to its beauty that just because you shifted your perspective just a little bit. The same is true of this beauteous gift, this amazing gem that God gives to you and to me. This precious thing of Jesus, our Savior, that saves us from our sin, that gives us hope and eternity. And, and so God, this, over the next five weeks, we're going to take a look at this amazing gift. And we're going to look at it, and we're going to shift our perspective just a little bit to explore the depth of what God has done for you and me. And I pray that over these weeks, that two things, God does two things. That one, you become a little more appreciative and oh, just enthralled with the beauty of what God has done for you. As you see it in maybe just a little bit of a new light, from a little different perspective, with a little more appreciation at just marveling at God's goodness and his gift of grace. And secondly, I, I hope and pray that some of the big words, the terminology that the Bible uses, that sometimes we look at and we go, ah, yeah, I don't know what, I don't really know what that means. That as we dig into these pictures and we explore some of these, uh, some of these themes that God, God paints in the Bible, that you see some of these words and you see the, the imagery and the scenario and the scenery behind it and you grow in your appreciation at the, the depth of what God has done for you because you understand the terminology and the scenario that he paints. Because Jesus has taken your place. He has replaced you. And that's what we find this morning as we go into the first scene, the first glimpse, the first picture God paints in Scripture this, uh, this Lenten season. And it's looking at the courts. It's using terminology from a courtroom. And I think that's something that, honestly, Americans just kind of love, right? I mean, whether it's, I don't know, because of this guy, good old Judge Wapner, starting it off, right, the people's court, and then replaced and expanded on by Judge Judy, and now replaced by, like, there's not even enough room on the screen to show you all the different courtroom daytime things that happen, right? And there's all kinds of books and movies and TV shows that, that capture courtroom drama, right? Why is it that we're so like, whoa, why did, why did millions of people tune in for OJ, which was 25 years ago, by the way? Why did so many people tune in for, for the impeachment trial, for all of these different things? And I think a lot of it is because, well, the stakes are big, right? Often... In a courtroom, the outcome decides the difference between prison and freedom. I think the other reason that we, maybe as Americans, really enjoy courtroom drama, uh, that we enjoy this idea of a courtroom scene, is because we have this like, ingrained sense of justice. Right? We, we love fairness. And we really hate when things aren't fair. And so we want to see the guilty get the punishment that's rightfully theirs. And we want to see 
Well, those are, that are not guilty, that are innocent, we want to see them set free. And we hate it when there's an injustice, when that doesn't happen. But would you hate it if you were the person on trial? Because all of a sudden, when we're the one that's the defendant, well, now that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Because, um, yeah, I just, I just want to not go to prison, no matter what the cost. No matter whether I actually did it or not, if we can find a loophole, let's find a loophole. I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to do that. I don't want to serve that punishment. And as we look at the words from Romans chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see God use the language of the courts to describe how Jesus has replaced us. As we jump into these verses, beginning in verse 19, we're going to see ourselves, we're going to find ourselves in this courtroom where God is the judge. And it's the court with the highest stakes ever, much, much greater than even the U.S. Supreme Court because this determines and decides eternity. It's the court that you and I will all stand before someday. It's a court where we're either condemned, found guilty, and sent away to the prison of hell apart from God forever. Or where we're set, declared not guilty and set free for joy and peace forever. The stakes are high. And that should cause us almost a little bit of a, a scary moment, right? Because while we don't probably like to think about it most days, the reality is our first takeaway. That you and I and every other human being will stand before God's court. There is not a single person that will escape that judgment. That will escape standing before God. And as we stand in God's courtroom, we stand accused. Maybe you're aware the name, the, the other name that God uses for the, for the devil in the Bible, Satan, it means the accuser. See, the devil doesn't just like tempt you to sin. When he tempts you, what does he do? Oh, you did that. How dare you? He accuses and not wrongfully, sadly. Right? And so as God looks out on this courtroom of humanity, what does he see? He sees a bunch of people that are lawbreakers. He sees a bunch of people that have taken his laws, right? His commands. We know them. We know what they are. We know they're summarized in, in nice 10, right? He commands us to not to covet not to hate, not to steal, not to cheat. He commands us to love him perfectly and to love others perfectly. And he doesn't just suggest it, right? You've heard the, the cliche, they're not the ten suggestions. They are, they are commands. God doesn't make them optional. And as he looks out, you know what he sees? Guilt. Not just a feeling, but a, a legal status. Because we've take, we know those commands. But what do we do? 
We use our, our words and we trash other people. And we attack with our words. And we, we hurt in our own defense. And therefore we think it's okay. Sometimes we hurt people and we don't even realize that, that we did that in the moment. We have, he, God looks at us and he sees people that have, have failed to love him to keep him as our top priority, right? We talked about that last week. God says, seek first my kingdom. And we say, yes, and then we don't. God sees people that, that use their words, that argue and fight. Why? Just so that they can be right and get their own way. And they're willing to say and do whatever it takes so long as they get it their way. He sees people that are selfish and self-centered. He sees people that, that look at the gifts that God has given them, not just their things, but the people, spouse and kids and parents and friends, as things that are far less than the amazing and wonderful gifts God gives. And as we hear the charges read against us, well, we know that we're guilty. I did that. You thought that. We said that. Can't argue with it. It's real. That happened. I did it. I broke God's law. And we don't like to think that way, but it's true. Because God's law makes it frighteningly apparent how far short we fall. That's what the first verses of our sermon text from Romans 3, beginning at verse 19, say this morning. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. What God's law does, his do's, his don'ts, his commands, what he, that does is makes us painfully aware of how often we break it. Because that's all that sin is. Sin is failing to meet God's standard. It's breaking God's law. Think of it like this. Think of a time when you were driving in maybe a new part of town or maybe a new town or maybe just kind of out in, the, out in the country a little bit, some place where you aren't familiar with it. It's a new, new territory for you. Haven't driven here before, don't really know this area, and you turn down a street and there's no sign on the side of the road that tells you how fast to go. It's a pretty major street, right? I mean, like, it's, it's four lane, it's divided. 55? I don't want to go too slow, right? I don't want people tailgating me and waving fingers at me and, and getting mad at me and honking their horns at me. I don't want to be that person, but I don't want to go so fast that I get a ticket either. So what do you do? I know. I'll pull up my phone because now maps sometimes shows the speed limit, but this one doesn't. So I'll pick something nice and simple. I'll, I'll shoot for a middle ground that's not too slow, but not too fast. I'll go 42. It's not a round number, but hopefully it's fast, fast enough that it's you know, not going to get too many people ticked off, and it's slow enough that if it, I won't get busted. 
And as you drive down the road, not only do you see a speed trap, but you see this sign. White sign, black letters, and this big number 30. And boy, does the foot come off the gas really fast. Why? Because now you know what the law is, and not just you know what it is, but you realize, I broke it. Because that's what the law does. It shows us how often we break it. Right? And that brings us to our, our second takeaway, that that's what God's law does. God's law, it makes me painfully aware of how often I sin. With a pang of guilt and a screaming conscience, God's law shines a spotlight onto those worst things that I have said and done that I can still hear the words and I am still reminded of what I did and still am ashamed of it. That people still go, hey, remember when you did that? <sighs> yes. And God's law also shines the spotlight on the things that nobody knows that are buried deep in my heart that I don't even want to remember and that I pray nobody else ever knows. And God's law shines a spotlight on everything in between. It exposes just how far short I really fall, how often I really do break his laws, how often I sin. And that means that as you and I are standing in this court before God, it's terrifying because the reality is we're guilty and we know it. And we don't have a leg to stand on, right? We can't say, I didn't do it because he's God. He knows. And the reality is I did. In fact, verse 19, I don't know if you caught that. It says that, that God, the, the law silences us because we have nothing that we can say in our defense because Claiming we didn't do it, well, that's a lie, which is perjury and another sin, right? We can't say, I didn't, I didn't mean to, God. I, I tried. But the law doesn't really care about that, right? The police officer doesn't pull you over and say, oh, were you trying to speed? He says, you know you were speeding, correct? You know how fast you were going. You broke the law whether you intended to or not. The law doesn't care about intent. The law cares about whether you did or didn't obey it. And the reality, the very, very frightening reality is that we know what's coming. We know what we should hear because we are guilty. And then the judge renders his verdict. Not guilty. What? How is that even possible? God's a holy judge, right? He can't, he can't like just excuse it and throw it out and pretend like those didn't count. He's a holy God who, who, just, who must judge sin, who must enforce the law and punish those who break it. How is it even possible? Look at how he explains it in Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God the perfection God expects and demands, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and prophets, the Old Testament, testify. This righteousness is given 
through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Everybody, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Remember Leviticus 16? A sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Those words, right? The last phrase makes it really clear. God, God is perfectly just, right? He is the one who ex- exacts perfect justice. There is no sin that goes unpunished with God. There is no sin that he turns a blind eye to and says, eh, no big deal. He is perfectly just. But did you notice what he also does? He's not only just, but he is the one who justifies. Now that's a term that we don't use very often, but the Bible does. And it's a a picture that God wants you to know. He wants you to know because it's what you are. It's our next takeaway this morning. That God declares, I am justified which is a courtroom term, and it simply means I am not guilty. Back in Paul's day, the guy who wrote these words, back in Jesus' day, if you were standing in a court of law, they wouldn't say you're not guilty. They would say you are justified, declared not guilty. That's what God has done for you. But that brings up the question, how how can God, who is perfectly just, and exacts perfect justice, declare a bunch of people that are so clearly guilty to be not guilty. That doesn't work. He's perfect, perfect justice, guilty people, not guilty. How in the world can God do that? How can a holy God look at you and me and say not guilty? Because you and I have been replaced by Jesus. See, God the Father declares you and I are not guilty, not because of what we do, not because of the law at all, right? He says it's apart from the law, apart from the do's and the don'ts, apart from the commands, apart from how well you do or don't obey him. You are not guilty, not at all based on your performance, on what you have thought or said or did. It's not about what you have done, it's about what Jesus did. Because we heard earlier, right, the the words from 2 Corinthians 5, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus had no, no sin, right? He had the perfect record. He's the only one who could ever stand before the court and say, I never broke your laws. I never failed, not even once. And yet he took our sin, all of it, from the, the most harmless little word that ever, we ever said to the most horrific thing we ever did. 
and everything in between it, Jesus took them all. And he took them on the cross and he suffered the guilty verdict to be condemned and the punishment that goes with it, hell itself, the wrath of God separated from him. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Because Jesus was suffering there on the cross what we deserve, the guilty verdict that should be ours. But he replaced us. He took our place so that we get his verdict. So that when God looks at us, he sees people who now have no sin because Jesus took it and paid for it. Who now have his perfect, perfect record, his perfection. And so God looks at you and he says, not guilty. Not guilty because of Jesus. So how is this yours? How do you get that? Well, the last verses make that beautifully clear. Where then is boasting? Hey, look at me, look what I did. Nope, it's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified, declared not guilty by God, by faith, apart from the works of the law. That it's not because of what you do or don't do that God says you are not guilty, but it's because you trust Jesus paid for it all. Trusting in Jesus as your Savior, trusting that he replaced you, and God says, not guilty. All of it wiped clean. That's an amazing, amazing thing that God has done. It brings us to our, our next takeaway. That Jesus replaced my guilty record with his sinless record. And he took my sin on the cross. And trusting that, that Jesus took my record and he paid for them all, and now I get his perfect sinless record, that's all, all, all that is needed for the not guilty verdict. Not that and a little more. Not you have to do something. Not don't screw it up, don't sin too bad. Not what do you have to do to, to keep God happy with you? You're not on some kind of double secret probation with God. It's done. You have been declared not guilty. That is an amazing, amazing gift because that means you are free. Because think about it. In a courtroom, when the judgment comes back, the verdict is read, not guilty. Okay, now you have to go back to jail for a little while. No. Now you have to commit so many or give so many hours of community service. Nope. Now you have to pay a fine. Nope. When you are declared not guilty, it's wiped off your record as if it never even existed, right? As if nothing ever happened. No arrest was made. That's what God does for you when he declares you not guilty. So when the devil comes and says, how could you? You think that God, God can really love someone who says that? Who did that? Who thinks that? Yes. 
God can and God does because he loves you. And he declares you not guilty because of Jesus. Because you simply trust Jesus has paid for all. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? That's what we say. And here's what that means. It's our last takeaway. That because of Jesus, I'm free. Oh, what a beautiful thought. Right? Free from guilt. Free from fear that God is mad at me. That God is... is looking to to get a pound of flesh out of me because of something I did, that God is going to make life difficult because of, of what I've been doing or how I've been acting. No, I'm free from guilt and fear. And here's the best part. You get to go into a world that's filled with guilt and fear and live free. Free from all of it. Free from the fear that that you haven't done enough. Free from the fear that your sins aren't really paid for. They are. Because Jesus paid for them all. You are not guilty of all of them. And you get to go to a world that's longing for some kind of peace and hope that knows that it stands condemned unless, unless they know that Jesus is their Savior, unless they trust in him, and you get to be that person. You get to be a part of the, the army of ambassadors that God sends out to live free and to share that freedom, the freedom from fear, the freedom for eternity with God, because you've been declared not guilty, and God wants you to know it, and he wants to sh- you to share it with everyone else. Because there are no sweeter words than to, be here to, than to hear that verdict rendered. You are not guilty because you've been replaced by Jesus. Amen.